Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. All right. So uh, this week we continue in uh, our larger series in 1 Corinthians that we're doing all the way through the end of August, beginning of September. Uh, We have this little mini-series, four or five weeks, uh, we're calling Gospel-Formed Relationships. The larger is Gospel-Formed Church. Uh, And so we've looked at uh, conflict resolution and uh, sexuality and a bunch of other things. This week we're talking about marriage, and then next week we're talking about singleness. Okay, so just to get that on your radar, uh, we feel like between those two things we will land, uh, we'll get most of y'all. Uh, the, just, the week after that will be the non-committals, uh, and so uh, we'll, get, we'll get you no matter where you're at. Uh, so talking about marriage, uh, I want to again draw your attention to the Q&A uh, question in your bulletin. Again, uh, normally would never recommend that you touch your phone uh, during church, but this is the exception to that. Um, out of curiosity, I would like you to raise your hand if you're married. Just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you're married. Okay, everybody look around. Okay, put your hand down. Raise your hand if you're not married, just broadly not married. That's everybody. Good. It's, you know, that's, uh, I would say, 60-40 not married. Does that seem about right? Good. Okay. So here's, here's what uh, the challenge of that is, is I almost would never preach a sermon that definitely doesn't apply to 60% of the room, right? Like that's not a great strategy uh, in general for keeping people's attention. So uh, 40% of y'all will want to hear this because you are married. Uh, 60% of you all will want to hear this because one, there is statistically speaking a very good chance that you will one day be married, right? Not everybody does. Not everybody wants to be married. Not everybody should should be married, but statistically speaking, most of you all will, the vast majority of Americans at least, get married eventually. Um, But that's one thing. The bigger thing is um, that I want to draw your attention to for now, because some of you, that's not going to be for, you know, 30 years. Uh, So for, I'm not trying to be pessimistic here, Uh, it's not tonight, okay, let's just say that. but for all of us here, one of, the, one of the really important things is we start this church and, and get this church off the ground that I want to bake into our culture from the very beginning is a sense of mutuality and community that might say in a perfect world, hey, I'm not married, so these five things we're going to talk about today don't apply to me today. They may apply to me someday, but more importantly, they apply to the people around me that I care about and love and am in community with so that if I'm in a community group with, these, with married people, if I am in an icon group down the road with these people, that I can help them and encourage them and be a part of a, 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 a community that doesn't just put married people with married people and single people with single people and say, well, gosh, we wouldn't ever want you to have to care for someone who's not like you or be around people that aren't like you, but that we would actually embody a sense of real biblical community that says, I need you because you're not like me. I need to be around you because you're not in my life stage. We all need each other. So if you could, if you're part of that 60% that is not married, and maybe there's a slightly less percent that has, that's not even on your radar at this point, um, that you would pay attention uh, to 
what we're going to talk about so that you can be a Christian brother or sister to your married friends here in this church. Okay? This is my plea simply for you to pay attention for the next 35 minutes. Okay? Deal? We'll see. I can tell when you're paying attention or not, so I'll tell you at the end. Okay. So 1 Corinthians 7 is where we will be, and we are going to do uh, 24 verses. Uh, so here's how we're going to break this up. Paul, in this passage, is going to tackle five issues. And the frame that I want us to uh, kind of go into this passage with is this. These are five obstacles that every marriage will face. Okay, and some of you have faced this, some of you are facing this, some of you will face this. These are five obstacles that every marriage will face and that have to be overcome in order to kind of grow nearer a, a, a flourishing marriage. Now, this is not everything that the Bible says about marriage. This is not a what we would call a topical sermon on marriage where we're talking about these big categories. This is very specifically Paul as a pastor writing to this very specific church calling out specific things um, that they, he knows that they are dealing with. In fact, from the very beginning, he's going to quote a letter that they had written to him. So it's, it's getting into the nitty-gritty of actual marriage stuff, okay? So five obstacles, five battles, we'll call them, because that feels like something we could win. Uh, five battles that uh, every marriage face, okay? With me? Here we go. Battle number one, verse one. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's responding to something they wrote to him. Quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. End quote. Full stop. The Corinthians are insane, right? Can we just establish that right now? Because this, this is the same church, this church that just wrote to Paul that they think it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman this is the same church that in like two chapters before had people in the church approving of a relationship between a man and his mother-in-law, okay? So they're insane, first. Uh, second, it says, yeah, this guy can sleep with his mother-in-law and there was somewhat affirming of that situation or some at least were proud of their kind of open-mindedness but that there's another faction in the church that might see that behavior and say, okay, well, we need to swing the pendulum the other way, and the way that we're going to deal with this sexual immorality, which was obviously rampant, because Paul addresses sexual immorality a bunch of times in 1 Corinthians, the way that we should deal with this is by saying men should just not have sex with women ever. Because everyone who's kind of like allowing that to happen has gone crazy with it. And so the only answer is, let's just prohibit the whole thing. And this is somewhat of a natural human reaction, right? We see an idea, and I, I, here, here's an example that I see in the church often. We experience, we have a bad experience of church, particularly with church leadership. Perhaps you run across a church leader that abuses their power, takes what authority God has given them and the congregation has given them and uses it for their own personal gain, whether it be financial or they're manipulative in relationships and they're accruing power, whatever the case may be. And so we see that happen in a church. The, all of the people in the church get burned by it. And so the response is either, well, church is bad. 
I'm not doing church anymore. Or leadership in church is bad. It should just be a full-on democracy in a church. Or there's this fundamental distrust of leadership in a church because this one person took the leadership that they had, this gift from God that is leadership, and used it and abused it so that people got hurt. Okay, and so the reaction is, well, let's just do away with that whole category of church leadership. That is essentially what the church in Corinth is doing with sexuality. It's going super sideways in this category, so the response has to be to prohibit it altogether. And Paul goes, this is not the right answer. He says, it is good for to have sexual relations with a woman, quotes them and says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. This is an interesting solution for this problem, okay? The problem is sexual immorality, right? This is the obstacle. This is the battle, the first battle that we're going to talk about, this battle against sexual immorality. The Corinthians see sexual immorality, and their response is, let's do away with sex. I think most people in the room would go, are there other options, right? Let's explore our options here before we land firmly on the no sex rule, okay? Paul goes, yeah, there's other options, right? And, and he's building off of the previous sections, the previous messages that we have taught on, and we've already been given biblical categories for this stuff. In fact, last week we talked about how we have gospel categories for the world, and that helps us see things. Specifically, we were looking at the issue of sexuality, but it's this kind of big, broad idea of we have gospel categories that help us understand the world, right? We believe that God made all things good, that there is an ideal and a purpose for the world that God created. And we have this category for things that got broken and sideways as we try to assert our own kind of sovereignty, our own godness over the world and say, no, what God made good, I'm not going to say is good anymore. I think this is good now. And that becomes what the Bible calls sin. Anytime we assert our own authority but that Christ came to redeem that. So not just to take away the guilt and shame of sin, but to actually change us in, in real ways back to the people he made us to be. And that's the gospel story, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So instead of simply saying, well, this thing's going bad, so we should just prohibit it altogether and say sex is bad and we just should not do it anymore, we, gotta go, we, ought to, we ought to be able to look at it as Christians and say, no, we have category for this. We've had in a lot of different ways, and people are thinking up new ways all the time. They're very creative. For this to go sideways... And so when we apply this kind of redemptive work of Christ to this issue, the answer isn't prohibition, the answer is redemption. And so Paul says, this is why each man should have a wife and each woman should have a husband if this sexual immorality issue is, is in play. So we have to ask, like, why is marriage the solution to sexual immorality? Well, Sexual sin is at its root exploitive. Sexual sin, all sexual sin is at its root exploitive in the sense that it is primarily about satisfying me and I am using the other person involved, whether that be a real other person or a digital other person or whatever the case may be, I am using that person to satisfy my desires. It's exploitive. 
by nature. But marriage and God's vision for marriage, that again, we talked about last week, is mutual and covenantal. That the very uh, vows we take, that the whole concept of marriage is from the very beginning uh, mutually covenantal. So we are entering into the decision to be for and exist for the other. That is the anti-exploitation. So we, we enter into sexually sinful relationships for our own sake. We enter into marriage for the other's sake, ideally, right? So Paul goes, listen, the solution isn't no sex. The solution is better sex, redemptive sex, covenantal sex. The kind of vision that God has had for sexuality from the very beginning. That's the answer, not to do away with something, but to return back to what was God's intention in creation and his intention in the future. So that's number one. We're going to roll through these really quickly. Number two, battle number two, the battle against self-interest or self-obsession even. Verse three. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And I always laugh at phrases like that because... The Bible was so clearly translated by old white guys that are just uncomfortable with some of the language. They're like, we'll call it conjugal rights, as if we're in prison, right? Like, come on. Each husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For, or because, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, audible gasp. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does, audible gasp from the Corinthians. Here's my favorite thing about the Bible. The Bible manages to offend everyone always. I feel like God took it as a personal challenge to find a way that there's be, there will be no culture that I cannot offend, right? No time, like my, my offense transcends time and space, right? Everybody reads that and is offended by one half of that idea. It says the woman does not have authority, the wife does not have authority over her own body, the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, the wife does. This is, this is fundamentally backwards. For most of human history, men had authority over everybody's body. And so when Paul writes this, literally, the church in Corinth would be dumbstruck by this, culturally speaking. This is an absolutely foreign concept. He says, do not deprive one another, except by, uh, perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because your lack of self-control. I, when I get to heaven... One of the questions I want to ask God, who knows all things, is how many couples in the history of the world chose to deprive each other for prayer? Like, how many times does that actually happen? Are we talking double digits? Because I'd be surprised. The idea that we are not our own is so fundamental to our kind of self-understanding as Christians. 
We, we talked about this last week. This is where Paul landed the plane on the issue of sexuality, is that we as Christians do not start from a place of self-sovereignty. I am not mine. And in marriage, it's doubly so. Because I start from a place that I am not my own. I didn't create myself. I didn't make myself. I didn't choose how tall I would be or how, uh, who I was born to or when I was born or what gifts I would have or what skills I would have or what weaknesses or limitations or how much hair or any of it. I didn't choose any of it because if I could, I wouldn't have. The hair thing. Specifically. So... We start from a place, Christians do, to say we are not our own. But then when we enter into the covenant of marriage, it is doubly so. Because then we go, I am not my own. God is sovereign over me. And now, to whatever degree I do have uh, some sense of self-will, I choose to give over my needs. I choose to give over my desires. I choose to give over my priority to my spouse. This mutuality in marriage may come as a surprise to some of you uh, who have uh, this sense that Christianity uh, is kind of this hierarchical, even patriarchal faith. And maybe passages like Ephesians 5 come to mind where it says, wives, submit to your husbands in all things. And you've heard that once and it just rings in your ears for all eternity. Um, And you think to yourself, well, that's just fundamentally broken. And uh, perhaps if that were all the scriptures said, and in fact, if that's all Ephesians 5 said, we might, you, you might have a point. But see, the scriptures tell wives to submit to their husbands in all things, but then it turns on the husbands. And just the moment husbands began to become a little smug and start kind of putting together a list of things that they're going to ask their wives to submit to, Paul turns to them and says, and husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if, if wives, if you women, if you are ever wives and ever your husband says to you, submit, I mean, God forbid he ever says to you, submit, but if he does, just say, die. (laughs) And then he has a choice to make, right? Like... Perhaps it's worth it in that moment for him <laughs> to prove a point or whatever. I don't know. But that's, that's the option. The issue that I've seen in marriage, and I, I've been a pastor for 18 years now, and I've uh, uh, counseled a lot of married people. The issue I see in marriages is a fundamental assumption that this arrangement exists to make me happy. That is not the case. And if that's the, if that's the assumption you make entering into the relationship, I, I promise you it will not go well. I promise you it will not go well. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And it's, it's a great book. I highly recommend it to anyone married uh, or engaged or thinking about getting engaged or hoping one day to meet a person. He writes in it this, he says, in any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? 
you do acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender or sympathetic and eager to please, but in your actions you must be tender and understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep, and you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. The remedy against self-interest and self-obsession is remembering that what you have entered into, the marriage you've entered into, is simply a decision to love. It's a decision to choose to love and to give of yourself to the other person, believing, hoping that they will do the same, that they have entered into this covenant with the same idea. But it is not conditional. You don't love if you love in hopes. Battle number three, verse six. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Uh, it's not exactly a, a, a resounding support of the institution of marriage. Paul basically says, like, I wish you all were single, if I'm honest. I wish you were all just like me and, and not married. But if you just can't control yourself, then I guess it's better to get married than to just walk around aflame with passion, which I, I don't honestly even want to know what was going on that that illustrates. But... Um, the scriptures call this, Paul says it is a gift, that both marriage and singleness are gifts. He says that in verse 7. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God. And I wonder, we call singleness a gift. I think most of us say so sarcastically to some degree, uh, or, or, or when we are honest about it, would say, I don't have the gift of singleness. But I do wonder how often we think of it that way. I wonder if more often we think of marriage as the default and singleness as the exception, as the special case of like, well, someone has to have a gift, this, this unique gift of God to be single or else they're just waiting to be the default, waiting to be married. But that's not what Paul says. In fact, I think in Christian culture specifically, we have overblown marriage. We have claimed that it can do more than it does. We, we have claimed that it can satisfy more than it will. We have claimed that it can bring meaning that it never can. And I think in the process, we have done great harm both to married people and single people. Marriage is a great good, but it is not an ultimate good. Marriage is the choice to enter into a covenant with another fallen human being. This is never going to be easy. It is never going to solve your problems. It is, if anything, simply going to multiply, multiply your problems. Add kids to the mix and you'll be Becca Crane before you know it. <laughs> unable to find a moment of silence amidst the chaos. We 
turn marriage into an idol all the time. Anytime we elevate its purpose, we elevate its uh, place in the church family, anytime we suggest that it is the end, we make it into an idol. We're going to talk about this uh, a lot next week and talk about what singleness means and is and what the purpose of it is. But Paul calls marriage a gift something that we we should be thankful for, but it is not our God. It is not the means by which we kind of come to some ultimate nirvana. It is a tool that God uses in our lives to make us more like him, but there are many such tools. So don't get me wrong, marriage is good, but it is not God. Uh, A woman named Rebecca McLaughlin who wrote a great book uh, called Confronting Christianity that you'll be hearing more about in the coming weeks. Um, She wrote a blog this week at the Gospel Coalition, and uh, it was about marriage and about sexuality, and she says this. She says, for women in particular, increasing numbers of sexual partners correlates with more sadness, depression, and suicidal ideation." While for both sexes, stable marriage is measurably good for one's mental and physical health. Married people have more and better sex than their unmarried uh, peers, and the happiness-maximizing number of sexual partners in the last year turns out to be one, according to data that she references in the blog. So marriage is good, don't get me wrong, I love being married and I love my wife and I feel like I have to say that since she's in the room. But it genuinely is, it genuinely is really, really good and great, but it also is really difficult and doesn't solve all my problems. It doesn't doesn't satisfy to the degree that I think often we suggest it might. So one of the battles that every married couple has to face is the battle of idolatry. And you know you are facing the battle of idolatry when you have unmet expectations and disappointment in your spouse's ability to make you whole. Jerry Maguire lied to us. A whole generation lied to by Tom Cruise. It's hard to imagine. No one can complete you. It's just not not possible. So we fight this battle against idolatry by being realistic about what another human being can do for us and how they are simply an imperfect picture of what only Christ can do in terms of truly satisfying and completing us. That's battle three. Battle number four, verse 10. It says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, you notice the subtle difference there speaks to the patriarchy of that day. That the best a woman could do is simply separate from her husband. A husband could divorce his wife. There was an imbalance there in power. And yet Paul says, the mechanism that each of you have, you each have a lever, they are different, but neither of you should pull the lever. This is the battle, and this is going to sound harsh, but it's the battle against quitting. That every single marriage will one day deal with to one degree of seriousness or another. Some of us quit on an argument 
and we just give up. Some of us should quit probably more often on arguments at certain times, but some of us quit in such a way that is just simply saying, you're not worth it. I'm not going to fight with you anymore because I don't care enough to get to the bottom of this issue. Now, Paul is speaking about quitting kind of at the macro level and quitting the marriage itself. It says simply that husbands and wives should not divorce. And he is borrowing on and building this idea on on the very ideas from the previous paragraph that we talked about last week where we understand, Christians understand marriage and sexual union is bringing real physical, emotional, and spiritual oneness between two human beings. We talked last week about how culture radically underestimates the metaphysical impact of sexuality. That you simply cannot have sex with another person and not be fundamentally changed by it. You cannot walk away the next morning and and this vision, vision that culture gives us of casual sex is a lie. It's just simply no such thing. So, Paul says, listen, something very significant happens in this marriage covenant, in this sexual union, and divorce disrupts this spiritual union. It undoes, in a way that is not without consequences, the covenant of marriage. Stanley Hauerwas, who's one of my favorite theologians and writers, says this. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we just look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. Why? Why will we always marry the wrong person? Because we are the wrong person. There is no such thing as Mr. Right because you're not Mrs. Right. There's no such thing as the perfect compliment to you because that's impossible. Have you seen yourself? There is no filling in all your gaps. That's not something a human can do. We are the wrong person. Our sin and imperfection keeps any other person from being the exact right one for us. And when we go into marriages expecting that, we will always ultimately be let down. Keller, again, from The Meaning of Marriage, Says when situations arise like this and when there's conflict and challenge in the relationship and the prospect of quitting on the marriage and trying to decouple this covenantal union is on the table. He says this, we must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I am giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. And he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us. Not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I am going to love my spouse. 
speak to your heart like that, and then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day. See, it all, it all kind of flows together, right? Marriage is a covenant that we make. It's not ultimately for our self-fulfillment, nor is it the Savior that we were looking for. No other person can complete us the way we need. It's a choice. It's a choice we make to love. And it's a choice we have to keep making, believing that the very same pattern of love that that. God poured out for us that made us lovable and made us lovely, we believe that we are changed and transformed and redeemed and reconciled in all the words in the scripture because of God's unrelenting love for us. So the same thing is true in marriage. That we cannot go into marriage thinking, okay, well, if they are lovely, then I will love them. That we go into marriage saying, I will love them because love is what makes someone lovely. Love is what makes someone lovable. Choosing to act in such a way that is redemptive and for the other person, sacrificial, is the pattern of God for us and it is the pattern of life in a marriage. Lastly, battle number five, verse 12. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? This is the battle against inequality. And and the the specific case here certainly probably applies to some some of us, some people, um, but there is an underlying larger category here. And one that that applies to every single one of us in that category is inequality. That there are ways in which you are, one spouse is stronger in some areas than another. Another spouse is weaker in others. And there's a a complementarity to it. You are not the same. You need each other. You complement each other. If we look for anything in a spouse, it should not be salvation. It should not be completion, but it ought to be complementarity. I, my Bible just picked up Daniel 2 and started reading. I'm not sure why. Lord. Here, there, there, is, there is something in us that wants to look at other people's weakness through the lens of our strength. This happens in marriage all the time where one partner is strong in some particular area and their partners, their spouse's weakness drives them crazy because it just seems so easy. Case in point, um, my marriage. Uh, my wife is, I'm gonna start with, uh, I'm gonna start with her. I am, uh, I am lame. 
uh, I'm not very much fun. I'm not great at parties. I, uh, my social uh, energy is, is little. Uh, my wife has, a, she abounds in social energy. There is no party that she doesn't want to be the last person at nor is the last person. So just know, if you ever invite Emily to a party, she'll be the last one there, whether you like it or not. She, there has been uh, uh, dozens and dozens of occasions in our marriage where shortly before, usually either a Halloween party where she's asked me to dress in a way I'm not comfortable with, uh, or a New Year's party, which just, it's late and I'm not interested. Uh, they're, they're pretty much every year in our 14 years of marriage, she has had to pep talk me into going uh, to this party. And I usually have a good time for the first several minutes. And then she <laughs> carries me through to the end. If it weren't for my wife, I would be much lamer than I am today. Her strength is my weakness. On the flip side, she'll never show up to one of those parties on time or really anything else in her life, and it drives me completely insane. The number of times we have left our house when we were supposed to be at another place exceeds the number of times we have been early to said places. It drives me insane. I don't understand why when we're already five minutes late, she goes, oh, I need to check the laundry. No, you don't. That is not a priority right now, but it apparently needs to be done. Uh, it is a challenge for me on a regular basis to see her strengths as winds that, that fill my sails of weakness and to be able to see for her that her weaknesses are simply opportunities for me to be strong and to carry the family on my back like a mule. <laughs> this, is, this is that same posture of caring for the other, a posture of service for the other, that God is saying from the very beginning of your covenant together. This is the posture. This is the only posture that you could enter into marriage into, uh, or er enter into marriage with, for it to go well, if you go into marriage expecting it to come, for all of the goodness to only flow downhill towards you, you will be disappointed. The essential agreement of marriage is that I exist for you in hopes that your spouse is thinking the same thing, but not conditionally so. We know this because this is the very arrangement that we have with God. From the very beginning and all throughout history and without exception, God has given and given and given his, his presence, relationship, love, grace, mercy, unconditionally. We, many of us have lived our entire lives rejecting God in significant ways. And yet he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives, and he's there. No matter how many miles we run away from him, all we have to do is turn back, and he's there. Immediately. We don't have to run back. He's there. This is the essential posture of God 
And it is, as Ephesians 5 tells us, that marriage is designed first and foremost to be a metaphor of the church's relationship to Christ. That we in our marriages have the opportunity to rehearse the gospel over and over and over and over and over. That we unconditionally give of ourselves and give of ourselves and give of ourselves and give of ourselves. Which leaves absolutely no place for us to say, as I have said, as so many of us in marriages have said a number of times, I've given so much. I give and I give and I give and I get nothing back. And God goes, yeah, sounds familiar. I know that feeling. And yet I give and I give and I give and I give and I give. And we give. there's no space for us to appeal to God and go, God, have I not given enough? And he says, you can stop when I stop. This is our only hope in marriage. This is our only hope to actually thrive in marriage. It's to rehearse the gospel over and over and over to recognize that we are called to give and give and give and give. And that in that giving, that God has designed the world in such a way that when we give and when we love and when we sacrifice, it actually affects the people that we give to and love and sacrifice for. And it changes them ultimately, not into what we want them to be. This is not a manipulative, I'm going to love them because in the end I know that they're going to become the person I want them to be. No, you're going to love them and they're going to become the person God wants them to be, which might be the opposite of what you want them to be. But it'll be for their good. That's the fundamental principle here. That we give and we serve and we love and we sacrifice and that it is the greatest pursuit we could ever have whether that's in marriage or out. That that's the fundamental posture of the Christian. Let's pray. Jesus, we do love you. We praise you, we serve you, we are uh, overcome by the reality of, uh, of your unconditional, everlasting love for us. And there is just simply no way for us to uh, as consistently and as fully give of ourselves as you have. But Lord, I pray that you would flow out, that you would demonstrate in powerful ways, that you would make obvious to us the great unconditional love and grace and sacrifice that you have and continue to pour out for us so that we might approximate that in some small way for each other. Lord, we love you and praise you in your name. Amen. Um, we're going to transition to a time of response, and the first thing that we want to do together is take some time uh, to think and to pray and to meditate on what we've heard uh, this evening. So um, we want to create space for silence, and, and we just do not get very much true silence in the world today, and so we want to create that space here because we can. Um, so I'm going to give you a, a two minutes uh, to reflect on what you've heard, to pray, to repent, to confess, to ask, to whatever. Um, and then when we're done with that, we'll move into a time of Q&A. So let's bow our heads together. Okay, let's, uh, let's take a moment to uh, answer some of these questions. Um, uh, I gave this disclaimer last week, and I'll probably say it every other week or so, but uh, I'm not the Jesus answer man. So these are my best 
responses uh, from the scriptures uh, to be able to answer these questions from a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview. Um, I don't want to set myself up as the, the guy with all the answers. Uh, I'm just the guy with these answers. And so take it or leave it. Uh, first question is a great one. If Paul asserts that singleness is good, why does the church not lead with that message more often and not better support singles? Great question. Um, come back next week when we support singles. Um, uh, this, this is, a, this is a, a, a complicated answer from a historical perspective as well. Um, the Bible is absolutely clear, clear. Marriage is good and singleness is good. Uh, we'll talk about the purpose of singleness next week. And, and just as Paul describes singleness in the, next, uh, the end of this chapter, um, but it is the constant temptation of humans to take good things and make them ultimate things, right? And so we uh, have this, there's this kind of cycle that happens uh, in, in all areas of life where we see patterns and those patterns are kind of generally good, like marriage is good. It has, uh, kind of correlates with a lot of good outcomes for financial stability and for, uh, you know, kind of family stability, good outcomes for children and all these kinds of things. Like, it's good. The institution of marriage is a very much a net positive for all societies. Um, and what we do, though, as humans, is we take things like that and we kind of codify them as like, therefore, marriage is best, right? And then we take that idea and we moralize it and we say, well, if marriage is best, then it's good and anything that's not that is evil. And so we kind of moralize the category. And then when it goes really sideways, we shame and, and guilt and pressure people into doing the thing that we've moralized because we've codified and blah, blah, blah. Point being, we make, we are, uh, as Luther said, uh, idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. We make idols out of everything because we just cannot be satisfied with God. And so we take things that we have more control over and make them replacements for God. We seek meaning and satisfaction from those things. And we should, we absolutely should not do that. And I hope I at least said that tonight and that Icon can be a place where singles are well supported. Um, next question. It says, how does a Christian couple, quote, fight fair and keep from making sexual expression a bargaining chip? How do we keep from making sexual expression a bargaining chip? Uh, first of all, stop. It's awful. Um, the Underneath every sin is another sin, a deeper sin that gets to the heart of, of a person, that gets to the heart of a matter. If you're using sexuality and sexual expression as a bargaining chip, you are wrestling for power in your relationship. You have a desire to be in control. You are manipulating your spouse using some lever of their desire in order to get what you want. So the only true remedy for any fight against sin is to get down underneath into the depths of it and go, what is it that I actually want here? So if this is being written from the perspective of a person who's having sexual expression being used against them, um, tread carefully, but ask questions. Get to the heart 
of what your spouse is dealing with and what they are trying to get, why this is happening, what is going on underneath. What is, this is usually derivative. It's a symptom of a larger problem. It is not the problem itself. So get to the heart of these things. Get to the heart of your spouse. It may, in fact, be that you have not gotten to their heart at all in any way. That sexual expression has become a lever for power because sexual expression is not uh, a moment of intimacy in your marriage. I don't know. That's a guess. Uh, But I've I've seen it a fair number of times. So I would encourage you, if this is you, get to the heart of your spouse in one way or another. Uh, Next question. There are obvious situations where divorce is okay, uh, but how long is it reasonable to have hope? Um, there are situations where divorce is okay. Uh, the Bible uh, is very clear about uh, uh, if you are cheated upon, if your spouse has an adulterous relationship, that you are freed from that marriage. Um, the question actually put abuse in parentheses, and uh, I, I do agree with that. The Bible is slightly less explicit about that, uh, but abusive situations are certainly grounds for separation. Uh, there's no question about that. But the core question here is how long is it reasonable to have hope? And, and I'm going to answer this um, in, uh, uh, and actually, I'm going to read the next question too because they're related. I basically give the same answer. Um, the next question was, if you have put in years of effort in an attempt at reconciliation and feeling seen and valued in the relationship, but nothing has worked, are you allowed out? Hear my answer, please, with the utmost compassion. No. And the answer to the first one, how long is it reasonable to have hope, is exactly as long as God has hope in your heart being redeemed. Which ought to give all of us pause as we enter into relationships. It is clear from the very beginning in Scripture that the Scriptures always talk about marriage as an eternal covenant, a lifelong covenant at least. A lifelong covenant is what you're entering into. It can only be broken by the most extreme of circumstances. This is why, in part, Paul says it might be better for you to be single. Because marriage is a serious deal. So this isn't, you know, the grounds for the end of marriage is not something like I don't feel valued or I don't feel seen or you know, I, I, I don't have, or, you know, how long is it reasonable to have hope? All this, it's for eternity because it's a picture of God's love for us, which is never ending and unconditional. That's the presupposition of marriage. So when we enter in, we're entering in. It is a great risk on our part to covenant with another person that we cannot ultimately control their affections. We cannot ultimately control their decisions. We are giving of ourselves, which is a great risk. And it is the exact move that God has made for us. Going to great ends of sacrifice in hopes that we would respond to him in covenant faithfulness. Um, I think we have time for one more. There's some really good ones, and so I'm trying to, I have to skip a couple here. I'm sorry. Um, Oh, man, this is so good. (laughs) All right. 
so hard. Somebody else needs to pick these for me. Um, all right. If, oh gosh, okay, here we go. I, I, would, I could do this all night. All right, if I don't answer your question, I'm sorry. We, uh, we're already way over time, and uh, we'll, I'll text you. Please email me, because I would love to email you back or meet up or something. Let me answer this one. Can you speak more to how Jesus didn't die for us because of any attractive quality we had? In other words, how would you respond to someone who may say that God's sacrifice for us seems selfish because he has an incentive to save them? It will bring him infinite glory, love, honor, and gratitude from these people. The cost of the cross far exceeds anything I could ever give back. The, the fullest expression, the fullest possible expression of human love and glory and adoration and praise pales in comparison to not just the physical cost that Jesus paid on the cross, but the spiritual one. The, the Christians believe the gospel is that in that moment, he didn't just endure the physical pain of the cross, which he absolutely did in every possible real way, but that in that moment, God put all of the sin of the world, past, present, and future, on his back. And if any of you have ever sinned in such a way that you have felt the burden of shame and guilt, felt the burden of consequence, and that you could even possibly imagine extrapolating that out to every sin, every horrific act of all of humanity for all time placed upon the shoulders of Christ on the cross, that I'm sorry, but you massively overestimate how good it feels to be praised and adored by a human compared to the great cost of all of our wretched sin and disgusting activity in the world for all eternity, that's not a comparison. There is no, that is a net negative in terms of incentive. Christ went to the cross, bore a horrific burden out of deep love for us that came not out of what could be on the back end, but out of his, the depth of his character, of who he is, that he is, in spite of everything else, loving and gracious and merciful to us. And anything, anything less than that vastly underestimates the pain of the cross and vastly overestimates how good it is to be praised by a human being. Because I, 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 I picked that question because of this. Because that has massive implications for marriage. Because even our, our, our greatest hopes for what could be at the other end of our sacrifice will pale in comparison to the pain of the sacrifice. You will never be loved enough by another human being to warrant the risk and the reality of a covenantal commitment to another person who is deeply flawed and broken just like you. So if, if that's an underlying motivation, I, I want to just dispel that as quickly as possible and as completely as possible. Christ went to the cross because he loved us deeply. Not because of what it would earn him on the other end. Because it's infinitesimally small 
compared to what it cost him. Which also makes a great transition to communion. So we want to make that transition now. We come to the table each and every week because of what I just said. Because it is a reminder that Christ on the cross looked down at a group of people who were in the process of killing him. And his followers, who had already abandoned him, had only shown back up when he was already on the cross and the deed was done, but had been absent in his moments of need. And he looked down on them and saw traitors. He saw cowards. He saw people that would never love him the way he had loved them. And he died on that cross to make them lovable. To redeem and reconcile for them, for us. And so we take communion every single week because we never don't need to be reminded of the love of God. The unconditional, sacrificial, others-oriented love of God that just never ends. So no matter what happened this week, no matter what, what sin, what disappointment, what mistakes, none of it. And no matter what victories, what, what arrogance you bring into this room, what opportunities, what greatness you think you have, it all falls apart here. Because Christ saw through all of it. Saw the sin, saw the good, saw the bad, saw it all. Said it's not worth it, but I will because I am good and I love and I am creator and sustainer and redeemer. And so we come not because we've earned something, but because we are the recipients of a great gift that we will never deserve. So in a moment, the band is going to play for us a few more songs. We're going to come forward, do our little cycle through here, and remember the cross and the great sacrifice that Christ made for us. Let me pray. Jesus, we do thank you. We praise you for this moment that we can never truly fathom. I hope one day in heaven we will be able to look upon your face and know and just be humbled. Just be thankful in a way we had never been able to understand. Because there's a part in all of us no matter how hard we try to kill it, there's a part in all of us that thinks we deserved it, maybe just a little. Because there's that, that, those good things in us, those, those good decisions we make or the, the charity in our heart or the, whatever, whatever it is, that there's a tiny, tiny little part of us that thinks we deserve this and this was you just setting things right, giving us the path we deserved. So I look forward to that day when we realize just how wrong that is and we fully feel the weight of this gift. And you will welcome us not with guilt, not with shame, not with condemnation, but joy and gladness and celebration that we are fully yours. So God bless this time. May it speak to our hearts in a new way today. In Christ's name.